Good afternoon, everyone. Um, thanks for those of us who have already signed up for the church bonding event on the spot. It's great. We'll see everyone online on that day. Um, let's come together in prayer as we gather to listen to God's Word. Lord, we thank you for bringing us through 2021. We thank you for your love, for your life, for your grace, for keeping us safe. The Lord, through all the change, through the frustration, through the highs, through the lows, we know that you are God and you remain Lord through it all. We pray that as we study your word today, the Lord, you will be our guide. We will learn your truths and your spirit will reveal your truths in our lives and teach us how to apply your word in our lives today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So last week, we finished up looking at 1 Corinthians 7, looking to the principles of marriage and, and what that means, right? And we have now arrived in the second half of 1 Corinthians. And, and to recap, here is where Paul begins to deal with issues that were apparent to the local church at that time. And chapter 8 that we'll look into today begins a section where Paul focuses on Christian rights. He focuses on a Christian's rights. So basically, Paul wrestles with certain issues faced by the church and he then ponders the Christian response. And through it, Paul makes reference to his own example, but not necessarily as a binding law, but rather to say this is how Paul himself had applied it. And he tries to give the Corinthian church the handles to ponder and think and discern the issues themselves so that their faith makes sense to them in an authentic way. In other words... Paul doesn't prescribe, he describes and gives them the tools to discern the proper Christian response. And while the subject matter in chapter 8 that Paul deals with is food offered to idols, which may not directly apply today, the larger question, the key question that Paul is pondering is how should we live out Christian truths in a fallen world? How do we as Christians live out what it means to be a Christian in the world out there? And before we read chapter 8, I thought it would be useful for us to get a sense of the backdrop of, against what Paul is speaking, to understand the context of 1 Corinthians 8 so that we're able to understand why Paul wrote what he wrote. Right? And this, is, this isn't just like fun facts or anything like that. But when we see the people that Paul is writing to and we understand the bigger picture of what's going on, we are then better able to draw the parallels to our own time. And so we've heard numerous times that Corinth was a bustling city. It was a city that's doing well, a city that's a commercial hub. And at this point in time in, in Corinth's history, to have a shrine or a temple to the local god or to the emperor was something that was commonplace. In fact, the worship of the Roman emperor was growing at this point in time. And in this culture, families would bring the best meat from their farms and from the market to the temple to offer it in sacrifice. And once the ritual was over, they would eat the meat they, consumed, they, they brought. Right? And naturally, because these animals were meant for sacrifice, they typically brought the best, the juiciest, the meatiest, the fattest. And so it was normal in, uh, because of that for many others to join in this post-sacrifice meal because there was so much and it was in abundance. So it became a place where people would gather 
to eat the meat. And the rest, whatever was left over, they would sell to the butchers who would then sell it at their stores. And put in, an, put in another way, or put in a simpler way, the temple was the place where many people got their share of meat. Right, to draw a parallel in our culture, it would be as if all the supermarkets and markets, like they shut their doors, and the temples were the only place that we could get meat. And so this clearly posed two problems. The first, for the Jews, some of whom decided to simply not eat meat completely unless they could be purchased from Jewish butchers who were few and far between. But it also posed a problem for converts, for those who had become Christian. Because their whole life, this has been their source of food. And possibly, some could have depended on these meetings, on these gatherings for their business contacts and their network. So the question was, were they supposed to leave it all behind? And yes, some of us may think, but following Christ means that we completely give up all these things. And that's not necessarily a wrong perspective to take. But just put it into the modern-day context, if someone who for all their life has been selling joysticks, and that's their rice bowl, and for 40 years this lady has been doing that, but one day this lady turns to Christ, how would we handle a situation like this? Right? Do we ask them to, to give up their rice bowl? It's a difficult issue. And it's exactly these sort of issues that Paul tries to answer. And through it, he wants to disciple the church to discern the right thing to do. And as we'll see, he equips them with the right sort of process and framework to think through these things. And he equips them to make disciples in doing so as well. So against this backdrop, we read 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be, there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God, we are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. 
We're going to approach the text in three sections. From verse 1 to 3, we're going to look at what Paul's principle was. Then from verses 4 to 6, we'll look at how Paul applies this principle directly to the question of the food offered to idols. And then we'll take a step back and we'll see how in the rest of the chapter, Paul considers the bigger picture. He looks at a wider consideration. So we begin by looking at Paul's principle and we read those three verses again. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. And Paul actually covers a lot of grounds in this verse, right? A lot of ground in these verses. And, and so to understand, we, we approach it like kue lapis, okay? Like, like layered cake. Seeing how Paul layers his words. And we start with this, where Paul starts by saying, we know that all of us possess knowledge. And the reason why that phrase in some of our Bibles may be in a quotation mark is because it was a phrase, a phrase thrown around by teachers of that time to justify their decision to eat food offered to idols. So the question is, what is this knowledge? Well, if we see that Paul acknowledges, pardon the pun, that they possess knowledge and he says, we know that, then we know that this knowledge implicitly is something that Paul knew as well because he uses the word we. It's a knowledge that Paul has and the Corinthian church has as well. And as such, this knowledge points to God. In essence, Paul is saying that yes, in God, we know as Christians God's truth. We have access to this knowledge and reality of who God is. And implicitly, as Paul will affirm later, the Christians know that eating food offered to idols bear no meaning. But Paul doesn't stop there. He adds in the second part of verse 1, he says, knowledge puffs up Love builds up. Why? Because Paul is teaching the Corinthian church that having the right knowledge is not the most important thing. That it's not just about knowing what is right, but it's about doing what is right and in the right way. In fact, he's pointing out that knowledge is self-serving and does nothing more than make us proud if not applied correctly. Right, Paul uses that word puff up. And that word puff up is a rather colourful phrase. Right? We, maybe we picture a puffer fish. Right? Full of air, takes up a lot of space, but doesn't really do anything. It has no substance at all. And Paul contrasts this to this idea of love, where love builds up. In other words, he's saying that this knowledge must be used in love. Paul's driving at the fact that knowledge alone, if we only know what is right, but we don't apply it with the right heart, it does nothing except make ourselves proud. It does nothing except increase our own self-esteem. Where unless the underlying ethic of how we apply knowledge is a love for others, knowledge does nothing more than build up our egos. So let's put this in, into a practical example, right? Let's say we have a cell member who doesn't turn up for cell. And it's the right thing to do for a cell leader to go and ask this cell member why he or she has not been turning up. But it does not give this cell leader 
the right to lambast this cell member, to scold this cell member publicly in front of the whole cell, or insist on his or her way in the name of discipline. And what's worse when we do something like that and then that member decides to leave? That's not discipleship. Where yes, there can be a time for tough love to be applied. Yes, there can be a time for the cell leaders to discipline the member, but not in that moment in time to accuse and to go after that person. It's doing the right thing, but not with the right heart. It's a principle that we hear echoes of in, in Theodore Roosevelt's quote, right? When he says, they don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And this is where Paul then adds that third layer, where he says, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. Paul tells the church, if you claim to know everything, you really don't know anything at all. It's like what's often said about humility, right? The, 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 the moment the first guy stands up there and says, I'm very humble, we know that that's a lie, that that statement is not true. And we remember, when we remember rather, that this knowledge that's being spoken of here is of God, the moment we claim to understand all of God, to have figured all of God out, is the exact moment that we should realize we have a fundamental flaw in how we are understanding God. Because the very nature of God is beyond human understanding. In other words, specifically, specifically in this case, we must remember that God is not just a God of right theology, as much as right theology is important, but we have to remember that God is also a God of love. In fact, if we separate theology from the love of God, that theology is flawed. And here's where Paul then seals the deal with a pretty clever play on words, where he ends this introduction with this, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Notice how in one sentence, Paul has changed the discussion from being centered on knowledge to being centered on love. And in being centered on love, he has his mic drop moment. You know, um, this, this trend whereby when you're done saying something, you drop the mic so that it's like there's nothing more to be said. He has his mic drop moment when he says that if we love God, we are then known by God. And that being known by God goes beyond any knowledge that we ourselves could gain. It's a beautiful way that Paul has used to wrap up this conversation. He says knowledge is important, sure, but love needs to guide that knowledge. In fact, if you love God, God knows you, and that's bigger and better than anything you could ever know. In other words, the primary thing for us is not the knowledge of right and wrong, but the love that we have for God. And if we love God, we will do the right thing. And on this basis, then Paul applies this directly to the issue of food. He says, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. And the word therefore indicates a link. That because we know God and we love God, or at least we seek to love God, 
we are assured that as verse 4 says, an idol has no real existence, there is no God but one. In other words, these idols in inverted commas and gods, they amount to nothing. That there is no difference between offering the food to the wall or to the chair. Right? And so in other words, we can say that there's nothing wrong with consuming this food. And we can do that, we can do that, sorry, and we can do that because, as it says in verse 6, there is only one God, the Father, from whom are all things and through whom are all things, and for whom we exist. Right? And as, as we pick through these phrases, we will un again uncover another layer of what Paul is preaching to the Corinthians. Remember that the key issue is food. And our interaction is with food. And Paul says, from whom are all things, through whom are all things. And this indicates that Paul is reminding them that this food is provision from the Lord. It is both by and from the Lord that food is even on the table. Then Paul says, for whom we exist and through whom we exist, reminding them that it is both Christ, by Christ and for Christ, that we come into being, that this provision is for our strengthening. In other words, as we eat this food, even if we partake in this food, we can by ourselves or amongst people of a similar maturity, eat it with a clear conscience and a thankful heart, recognizing that even food offered to idols, because it being offered to idols means nothing, we can see it as God's provision for us. But there is a wider consideration, as you will see from verses 7 to 13. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through formal association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no far off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees... You who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. In life, we always say, there is a but. When we hear some bit of good news, the skeptics in us say, where's the however or where's the but? What's the catch? And that's exactly what happens here, right? In the previous section, it sounded like Christians could eat to their heart's content because their consciences were clear. But Paul says, however, specifically he says, however, not all possess this knowledge. And here we must identify who Paul is referring to when he says not all possess this knowledge, right? Where, and he says that their conscience is weak. And he can, we can take this to mean two sets of people, to say that not all possess, it's either he refers to pre-believers or perhaps he's referring to young believers. And if we take more contextual clues, perhaps Paul has a little bit more of a focus on young believers in the sense that he describes them as having former association with idols. 
That's not to say that no lessons can be drawn from this passage about what it, how, what it implies about our witness to the rest of the world, but we can see that Paul might just have that little bit of emphasis on the ones that are younger than us in the faith. In other words, when he says former association to idols, he's pointing at those who worship or subscribe to these idols. So what's Paul driving at here? We remember that eating food offered to idols is so ingrained within this society that perhaps those who had come to know the Lord had not had their paradigm shifted yet. That they had not yet reached a maturity to approach this food in front of them as seeing it as provision from the Lord. In turn, they find themselves stuck and they go away thinking that very simplistically, eating food to idols is okay, forgetting the framework shift that needed to happen. And because of that, because they go away with that thinking, their conscience becomes polluted, it leads them astray, and potentially it could cause them to sin. If we put this into a more modern context, right, we know there's nothing biblically wrong with having a bit of alcohol in moderation. Right? We always like to joke, right? Jesus turned water into wine, so why cannot drink? But say we know someone who struggles with this alcohol problem. Say we are out at a church gathering with youths who are not that mature. Would we really be drinking in front of them or would we be willing to abstain knowing that we do not want to pollute their conscience? Right? On that note, maybe it even applies to what we post on social media. There are things that maybe there's really nothing wrong, but people could get the wrong impression. Is what we're doing stumbling? Are we giving the wrong impression such that it leads people down the wrong road? That's why Paul's counsel is this. Take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. In other words, be sure that the things we do, the way we carry ourselves, does not negatively influence those younger than us in the faith. Be aware of ourselves that our rights don't cause others to sin. Because if we do that, the passage tells us we sin twice. Right? Verse 12 says, Thus sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. We sin against our brother, we do wrong by them because we have inadvertently led them into sin, and in doing so, we sin against Christ precisely because we have stumbled that brother. In fact, if we take one step back to verse 11, it hints that in doing so, we cheapen the work of Christ on the cross because it is precisely for this brother that Christ died. So if we put it all together, in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul says this, In Christ, we have the freedom to do many things with a clear conscience. In this case, we know specifically that eating food offered to idols, we can do it with a clear conscience. However, we do not live in silos and the people around us may not have that same maturity. We talked about what influence could it have on our pre-believing friends. If someone sees us doing that, will they be under the impression that maybe Christians don't take their God too seriously? They can continue being involved in all these things. We might do it with a clear conscience, but it affects how others perceive our God. In other words, 
this knowledge that we have must be exercised in love. And sometimes that may mean an inconvenience for us. Where Paul ends in verse 13 with this, right? Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will not eat meat. He isn't saying this as law. He's saying that because I care of my for my brother, because I care what others may think of my God, because I am concerned for the name of the Lord, I will give up this right. So it's not so much the action that's, primary, that's primarily in question. It's what is the ethic that we live by. Do we live with the love to build the, those around us? Pastor Mabel next week will elaborate on this even more, challenging us about whether it's our rights that matter or is there something greater at stake? Are we willing to give up our personal rights for the flourishing of our neighbour? But for today, if we think about it, what 1 Corinthians 8 points us back to is a culture of discipleship. It seems like a while since we've used that phrase verbatim, but that phrase points to the core of what Paul is speaking about. That each of us influence each other's lives and in all saints we are called to set the example for one another to do life together as a body of Christ because that's what it means to live in this culture of discipleship. Right? When we think about a culture of discipleship here in ASE, it refers to that journey of disciple, disciples, discipling. That each of us here should be discipled and in turn live and be disciples and in due time disciple others. And there is an onus upon us to take ownership of this journey to ensure we are discipled so that as we progress into this portion of, of Corinthians on personal rights, it will be an opportune time to reflect on our journey at three levels. At a personal level, in becoming a disciple, in being discipled, what are the standards we live by? Do we live with a clear conscience. And this in turn ought to get us thinking about a community level. And this doesn't just mean the leaders of all saints, it means each and every single one of us that we influence those around us, perhaps in our cell groups, perhaps it's just simply because we are older and people are looking up to us. Think, in the way that I carry myself, in my thoughts, my actions, my words, am I stumbling those around me? Am I stumbling those around me? Am I too critical, too cynical? Do I inadvertently quench the Spirit's momentum with my skepticism? Am I inadvertently discouraging the leadership with my constant questioning? And finally, we talked about going one level wider. We talked about looking wider than that. In our call to make disciples, we are also reminded to live a lifestyle of evangelism and that's where beyond the church out there in the world, in the way that we carry ourselves, are we a witness for Christ? Are we willing to give up the things that we can do with a clear conscience so that people will be brought to Christ? This is a joke that we always say in, in Crux, right? Where, where sometimes we, are, we feel very challenged and very constrained that people challenge us, right? A Christian can behave like that one, man. And, and, and sometimes there's a little positive in that because in their minds, they are holding Christians to a certain standard. 
And that should call us back again to live as witnesses. It should call us back again that this is not, that people thinking that Christians behave in a certain way is not necessarily a bad thing if we are representing Christ in the right way. It's really sad when their impressions of what Christians should be are of a higher standard than how Christians are living. And so as we look to become a church that is rooted and grounded in the Lord, as we build this culture, this culture of discipleship, it means that we need to have the maturity to look beyond ourselves. To not only look to our own interests, to not merely have a theological basis to justify our actions, as justified as those actions might seem, but to remember that we serve a God of love. And it is equally important not just to know what is right, but to do what is right in the love of God. To walk in this way of love. And we'll come back to that phrase in chapter 13. But for now, let's go away thinking about our actions. Are we actively living out what it means to be a disciple to the people around us? Are we actively living out a Christian life to be a witness to those in our lives? Let's pray. God, we thank you for this message from Paul that, that is layered, that is nuanced, but we thank you that we are able to see its relevance in our lives today that while we, can have, we, have, we are at liberty to do many things, give us, Lord, the courage, give us, Lord, the strength to give up these rights when it means that we are making disciples, when it means that we are guiding people to you. Allow us, Lord, to be your witnesses. Strengthen us to give up our rights to be these witnesses that are called to the world around us. We thank you for the freedom that we have in you. And we pray that we will not abuse this freedom and that we'll be constantly guided by your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to play this song for us to reflect. It's a song called For the Sake of the World. As we think about the world, it's not just the world out there, but the world around us as well. Are we willing to lay down our life for the sake of those around us to see them become disciples? In Jesus' name. <laughs>